something as a class for a while. So it's going to be a sweet time just to get together and fellowship and uh, practice by just a sweet time of prayer together um, and then uh, and fellowship. So pray we get some good weather and pray that this pollen clears up. Man, I had tumbleweeds yeah. of pollen in my driveway. <laughs> so um, I'm looking forward to, to that. Paul. All right, well, turn with me to John 13. I've been waiting a long time to say that, and uh, we are entering the sweet part of this gospel. John 13. This morning we began the second half of the gospel of John. Um, it's called the Book of Glory. It stretches from chapters 13 to chapter 20. Almost the uh, entire second half of the Gospel of John, and it focuses in on one day of Christ's life, the last day of his life. Um, chapters 1 through 12 taught us about the public ministry of Christ, which extended for three years, uh, presented us with six messianic signs and his teaching about what those signs mean. Um, it was filled with the unbelief of the people and the hostility of the leadership. And in chapter 12, it comes to a screeching halt as Jesus ends his public ministry. That's what we saw last time. It's done, uh, his public ministry. Um, he knows that his hour has arrived. And from now on, for the rest of the gospel, his focus is going to be on the cross in chapters 13 to 20. But in the first five of these chapters of the book of glory, chapters 13 through 17... His focus is going to be exclusively on his disciples. No more on the public, no more on the crowd, only on his disciples. He knows what's about to happen to him. He knows that his cross is on the very near horizon. He knows what, where he's going to the Father. And so before it happens, he first prepares his disciples for it. He teaches them about the significance of what those events are going to be and what they should expect afterward. So you may remember that Christ's signs, if we just said, were always accompanied by his teaching to explain the significance of those signs. And we get that same pattern here. Before his ultimate work is accomplished, he first teaches his own how to interpret and what to expect in his work. These chapters are often known as the upper room discourse. Um, they take place in the upper room during the Last Supper of Jesus with his disciples. Uh, in these five chapters, John gives us something we don't get in any of the other Gospels. Uh, we get a glimpse into this intimate conversation Jesus has with his disciples during these last hours of his life. And John tells us these things because what he says in these chapters has massive relevance, not just for his disciples, but for me and for you and all of his disciples who would believe in him. So chapter 13 um, is where we begin, and it begins with this extraordinary scene of Christ washing the feet of his disciples. You're familiar with the story, but it is... A glorious story. I've entitled it, Loving Savior, Humble Lord, Cleansing Messiah. 
lessons from Christ's washing the feet of his disciples. So let's look at this story. John introduces the story, and not just the story, but the entire book of glory. All of these chapters, he introduces it in verse 1. In verse 1, with the glories, the glorious love of Christ, which overarches the passion story. Look at verse 1. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Note the main verbal idea in this sentence comes at the very end of that verse. You see that? He loved them to the end. That's the main idea. That's the main clause. Everything around that is preparing for that. That's the main point. He loved them to the end. Everything from here on out in the Gospel of John is the result of, and it's explained by, the love of Christ. That's what John is saying. What does this mean, he loved them to the end? It could mean that he loved them to the very end of his life, or it could mean that he loved them to the uttermost. Uh, and I think that John means both of those things. Christ loved his own to the fullest extent, to the very end of his life. Herman Ritterbos put it this way, it was love to the last breath and love in the highest degree. That is what we are going to see in the book of glory as we go forward. In order to help us feel the weight of this statement, John prefaces it with three comments. Look what he says. He tells us first that it happens at Passover. His intense love was displayed at Passover. He says before the feast of Passover. John tells us that what we're about to read took place immediately before the Passover. This year, uh, Passover took place on Friday. And in Jewish reckonings, Friday begins at sunset on Thursday evening. So that's how they consider the day. Sunset goes down, the next day begins. So what we're going to read picks up immediately before the dinner that evening on Thursday night. That's where John begins this. But why does he mention Passover? Um, it was no mistake that he mentions Passover. Christ had come to die on Passover in order to fulfill Passover. He had come to be the final sacrificial lamb of God, the Isaiah 53 servant that we saw last time. He came to die this way out of his love for his people. So it was at Passover. John also tells us that his intense love was rooted in his knowledge. Where he says, when Jesus knew or when or because Jesus knew is the idea. What did he know? It says he knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. He knew that his hour had come. We just saw that in chapter 12. Um, his hour was his moment of greatest agony and suffering. His hour of death, the hour that would accomplish the Father's plan. 
I think the idea here is that Christ's love was not weakened by this hour, but it intensified as this hour drew near. And as he knew that it was coming, and he would return to the, the Father through it. Christ's extraordinary love for us was motivated by the Father's plan, and it was strengthened, not weakened. He wasn't hesitant by it, but he was strengthened as he considered his hour of suffering and what, we, what he would accomplish for those he loved. That's why John puts it there. He knew his hour had come, and it only intensified his love for his own. And that's where he goes next. Number three, his intense love was directed to his own. Look what he says. Having loved his own who were in the world. Who are his own? They are who? They are his disciples. They're his sheep. They're the ones the Father had given to him. And we have seen this throughout the entire gospel. Let me show you a few places. John 6, all the Father gives me. The good shepherd calls his own sheep by name. When he has brought out all his own. John 10, 29, my Father who has given them to me. 15, 19, I chose you out of the world. That's his own. It's his disciples. It's the elect. It's the ones the Father has given the Son for him to redeem. John 17, all you have given me. Verse 6, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me. You gave them to me. That is what Christ is talking about here. John says he came having loved his own. His focus here is specifically on his own. And all that follows will be the overflow of his love for his own people. So let's tie all this together, what we just saw in verse, verse 1. Christ loved his own who were in the world through his ministry. We've seen that all through the Gospel of John. But now he will love them to the utmost degree. His love for them found its greatest expression in his death. Greater love has no end to this than that he should, what? Lay down his life for his friends. John 10, 15 says the good shepherd lays down his life for the ones he loves, for his sheep. D.A. Carson writes, the object of the love of God in Christ in these chapters is therefore not the lost world. Who is it? It's the newly forming people of God, the disciples of Messiah, the community of the elect. Jesus had loved his own all along. He now showed them the full extent of his love. And that includes you and it includes me. This morning. If you're a disciple, it means you are his own. It means that you were given to him by the Father. It means that Christ did not love you generally, but specifically. He did not love you in part, but to the fullest extent and to the greatest degree. 
with the highest intensity possible for you in this hour. And that is how John introduces the book of glory. That is what we will be learning about as we go through. So here's the call. See the love of Christ overarching it all for you. It's an amazing way to begin the passion narrative, isn't it? John does not want you to miss the truth of Christ's great love for you, specifically. And that love is what he has demonstrated in the cross and also what he will demonstrate very shortly in our, in our passage. So after giving us the introduction now to the book of glory in verse 1, John now opens up the doors to the upper room and he escorts us in because this very love is going to be now put on display in anticipation for the cross. Christ's focus now is exclusively on his disciples, those whom he loves and is about to love in the greatest possible degree. And to demonstrate this, Jesus does something absolutely breathtaking. And that is our story this morning. Verses 2 to 5, we will see the glorious condescension of Christ, which is portrayed through foot washing. In verses 2 to 3 of this, these verses here, the, it tells us that his foot washing was rooted in his knowledge of his glory. Look at verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Notice this verse unfolds just like verse 1. The main verbal idea is at the very end of the verse. You see that? He rose from supper. That's the main action. And everything before that is preparing you for it and explaining it. What is so significant about that? So let's see. John tells us first that what he's about to do, he's going to do in the face of the satanic plot against him. It says, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. Judas betrayed Christ, and at this point he had already planned to do it. John tells us that it was nothing less than satanic Judas was being influenced by the devil. He was cooperating with the devil to destroy Messiah. But it's no surprise to Jesus. He knows it. He's sovereign over it. Christ will do what he's about to do, both knowing Judas's heart and the certainty of his death. And I think John puts this in here uh, to remind us that Judas was present for this foot washing. And Jesus knew full well what Judas was about to do and his cooperation with Satan to do it. Judas is not one of Christ's own, nor will the meaning of the foot washing apply to him, as we're going to see what the foot washing means. But even here, we get a glimpse of Christ's great love, even for his enemies, knowing what is in Judas's heart. He stoops as if to give Judas one more chance. Washes his feet in love as if to call him to repentance one more time. 
all the while knowing his heart. But not only did this display his general love and grace, but it was meant to display Christ's complete control. He knew what's going on. And he's in complete control. Look at the next line. His knowledge of his sovereign power. Verse 3. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. Jesus knew the Father had given all things into his hands. That The idea there is his authority, his control over all things is in his hands. He has it. In other words, what he's about to do is meant to portray that what will be accomplished through his death is no accident. He's sovereign over Judas. He's sovereign over all the events. His death and betrayal would not happen to him. By chance, he is sovereign over it. He could have stopped it. He has all things in his hands, but he doesn't. He knows this. And finally, he knows his, his glorious nature. Not only does he know that all things are in his hands, but that he had come from God and was going back to God. He was with the Father in eternal preexistent glory. What does John 1, 1 say? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. John 17, 5 Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Jesus knows this about himself, and he rises from supper now, and he does what he's about to do because he knows this. In other words, he's about to give a vivid illustration for his disciples of what he knows about himself. What he's about to do will illustrate his condescension as the sovereign Lord of glory, down to the depths of the cross, out of his great love for his own people, through which he will return to the glory with his Father. And that brings us to this story part now, the narrative. He rises from supper. And now in verses 4 to 5, his foot washing illustrates his condescending work as a slave. Look at verse 4. He rose from supper and he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. The scene begins with Christ rising from his position of honor and glory table right he knows and he's about to give an illustration he rises from his position of honor and it says he lays aside his outer garments it's been a very humbling thing to do and he takes a long towel what would normally be used for this purpose and he ties it around himself and the picture is of christ descending from the position of honor at this meal to the very form and appearance as the lowliest of slaves. The Lord of glory looks like a slave. Verse 4. This is what lowly servants did and looked like. Servants who were looked down upon by Jews 
and Gentiles. This is what the lowliest are and act like and do. Nobody else would do this, and certainly not the host of a feast. But that's not all. Look at verse 5. He not only looks like a slave, verse 5, he poured out water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Hospitality at that time included provision of water for people to wash their feet. You see that all through the Old Testament. Um, it was very common. The streets at that time were not paved. They were dirty. Um, people wearing sandals would obviously have very dirty feet. At a meal like this, at a banquet, they would be reclining on their sides next to one another, their feet pointing out away from the, the table. So it would have been very important that the feet of guests would have been washed. Often a slave or a, a lowly servant would be provided for this, for this task of washing the, the feet. There's obviously no servant present at this private dinner with Jesus and his disciples. It's just, just them. And so low was this job that none of the disciples take it on themselves to perform it. They just didn't do that. And so when Jesus rises and dresses himself as a slave and begins to wash their feet in this way, they had to have been absolutely astounded. Craig Keener points this out. He says, For a person of status particularly a patron host, to wash his guest's feet as if a servant would be unthinkable. D.A. Carson notes that there is no instance in either Jewish or Greco-Roman sources of a superior washing the feet of an inferior. This is unheard of. And there's a symbolic meaning in this washing, and we're going to get to that. But here the point is first to call our attention to the glory of Christ's condescension. From the highest position of honor to the lowest place as a slave. Christ is teaching that in his cross, in his hour, he would be stooping to the lowest position in service to his people out of his love for This is the glory of Christ's condescension. He's the Lord of glory, and he would dress himself as a slave to wash the feet of his disciples, which ultimately pointed to what he would do for them. It's a picture of just how far the love of Christ will go. And it's going to apply to the disciples later as a model that they need to imitate. But first, it is not a model for them to imitate. First, it is a declaration of what Christ has already done for you and for me. We're not first called to serve Christ. We are called to first be served by Christ. Mark 10:45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, the glorious Son of Man, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. That's what Jesus is illustrating here. Don't you hear Philippians 2 in this passage, the progression? Listen, look at the, uh, I made a chart. You can compare it. Let me just read Philippians 2. 
although he was in the form of God, very God of very God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be held on to for his own advantage. But he made himself nothing. He emptied himself. How? Not by losing deity, not by losing anything, but by taking the very appearance and form of a slave. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God is highly exalted. Christ's glory shines the brightest at the cross because it reveals the glory of the depths and the character of God. This is what God is really like. Paul and John are telling us this is how magnificent and worthy of praise he is. Again, D.A. Carson writes, The matchless self-emptying of the eternal Son, the eternal Word, reaches its climax on the cross. That does not mean that the Word exchanges the form of God for the form of a servant, that he ceases to be God. It means rather that he so dawns our flesh and goes open-eyed to the cross that his deity is revealed in our flesh, supremely revealed at the moment of his greatest weakness and greatest service. That is what God is really like, my friends. He looked like a slave, but in so doing, his godness was put on vivid display. But what is the meaning of this foot washing? Why is he doing this, of all things? Why is he washing their feet? Just seeing that Christ wanted to teach his disciples about the depth of his love for them, displayed in his condescension, but now he wants to teach them something about what specifically he will accomplish for them at the cross. And so in verses 16 to 17 now, we're going to get the glorious meaning of the foot washing. And it's going to be explained in two scenes. There's a twofold application to Christ's cross work. On a fundamental level, Christ's cross is unique. It provided a unique substitutionary atonement that you cannot imitate or model. It cannot be repeated. It can only be received. Again, we saw this repeatedly in chapter 12. He came to be your substitute. That is not a model. That's the fundamental thing that Christ is going to illustrate. But then there's a second application of his cross. There's another level. Christ's cross also makes demands on all those who are his disciples and have experienced this love. The cross is also the paradigm and the model for discipleship. Loving service and self-denial motivated after Christ's work for you, his love for you, is what it means to be a disciple. And we're going to get both of these in this, uh, in this passage. That's why he's doing this foot washing. This morning we're only going to cover the first one of these. And then next week we will cover, or next week we're praying, the week after that we'll get the next one. So let's look here. The first way he illustrates the meaning of the foot washing. In verses 6 to 11, Christ's foot washing illustrates the necessity of the cleansing work of his cross. 
that, this was the, what the washing meant to illustrate. Jesus' cross and his work for the disciples is going to become plain as we move through these, these verses. Look at verse 6. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you all are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. Jesus apparently has already washed a number of the disciples' feet before he comes to Peter. But while all the others were just silenced in astonishment for what's going on, Peter now speaks out for what everyone was already thinking. Typical Peter fashion. It was not just astonishment. It was it was repulsion. Uh, is, the, is the sense you should get here? Such an act was turning everything on its head. It was not just inappropriate. It cut against everything that defined greatness and how Jesus of all should be acting. He protests. He he refuses to receive this this washing. He says, do you wash my feet? In other words, no, I'm not going to allow that. And in response, Jesus makes two points about his washing and what he wants to illustrate in his conversation with Peter. The first thing that is meant by it is the essential need to be cleansed by Christ's cross in verses 6 to 8. The essential need to be cleansed by Christ's cross what he says. Peter says, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward, literally after these things, you will understand. What are these things? What, what are those? I think it's clearly talking about Christ's suffering, his cross, his resurrection that is coming. Jesus says, after my cross, then my actions here are going to become crystal clear what I am doing to you. Why he's doing this, what it means, is going to be clear. Uh, and this is a theme that go, has gone throughout John. Again, if you've been with us, many things Christ has said, many things he has done that it's not obvious until you look at them through the lenses of his cross and his resurrection. And it's the same here. So I think this is our first indicator that Jesus means this foot washing must be interpreted through what he's about to do in the cross, okay? But neither Peter nor his other disciples know that. They have to wait. But whatever it might mean for Peter, it is intolerable. And so he protests again in verse 8, you shall never wash my feet. It's very strong in Greek. Um, You will most certainly not wash me in all eternity, is the idea of what Peter is saying here. I will never allow this. To which Jesus responds with an equally strong statement, Except I wash you, you have no part with me. 
That means you don't belong to me, Peter. You don't have a share with me as your Messiah and all the benefits of my Messiahship. If I don't wash you, you are not mine. In other words, I think this is another way we can know Jesus is not just giving an example of humility. He is giving a profound statement about what his cross is going to accomplish. He's demonstrating what is at stake in his cross for his disciples. Christ's meaning is to highlight both what he came to accomplish in his cross and how essential it is to be cleansed by his cross. Apart from this, you are not his. So what is it portraying? We get this word wash three times in these two verses. We're going to get it again in verse 10. We're going to get the word bathed, and then we're going to get the word cleansed two more times. In other words, Christ is here teaching that he has condescended from his glory and come in the form of a lowly slave to die on the cross, whereby he would wash and cleanse his disciples whom he loves. He would do that by his blood. It's in Revelation 7, 14. I said to him, Sir, you know, he's talking to the angel, and he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That is what Christ is illustrating. He's going to the cross to shed his blood, which would wash his disciples. Cleanse them. We'll come back to that in a moment. To this, Peter responds again in verse 9. Um, he doesn't know what it means still, but whatever it means, if it's necessary to belong to Christ, he wants it, and he does just, doesn't just want his feet. He says, my, my hands and my, and my head, give me more of it, Lord, if that be the case. And to this now, Jesus responds, and he uses it as an opportunity to extend this metaphor in a different direction now. He's going to shift gears a little bit on us. And he's going to explain some of this washing a bit, a bit further. So the point here is that his cross is essential for a disciple if he is going to be cleansed by Christ. It's what it means to be a disciple. You must be cleansed by his cross, made clean, your sin atoned for and forgiven. But number two, the rest of the verses, Jesus is going to illustrate the ongoing need for already clean disciples to be daily cleansed. Look at verse 10 again. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you all are clean, but not every one of you. Jesus gives them this general principle. Uh, Peter does not need any more washing except his feet. Just as a person who is already bathed does not need to wash anything more than his soiled feet. Um, it was customary for people to, to bathe before coming to a big banquet like this. They would have taken a, a bath gotten clean, but upon arrival, your feet would have been soiled from the, from the journey, and they would need to be washed again. That's the, the picture Jesus is giving. And he says, 
now he applies it spiritually, they are completely clean. And you all, speaking about the ten, are clean. He tells Peter and the ten that they are already completely clean. That word's very significant. Early on in John, we saw this word purification. It's the same root word in Greek. Purification that Jesus has come to provide in the new birth, in the gifts of the new covenant. I'll show you one of them. Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean from all your uncleanness. And from your idols, I'll cleanse you. I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So Jesus has come to do, to cleanse his people, to atone for their sin and to transform their nature. Both of those is how he would cleanse them. This phrase is used again in John 15. Flip over there with me, John 15. This phrase, you are clean. It's used exactly word for word in John 15, verse 3. It's what Jesus has come to do. John 15, verse 3, already you are clean. Why? Because of the word that I have spoken to you. What is his word? It is his teaching about all that he is and all that he's come to accomplish, received by faith. That is why they are clean, Jesus says. They're already completely clean. Because they've embraced his word about who he is and his cross. So before we move on, Jesus wants you to hear this word. You are completely clean. It's what he declares to Peter and all of his true disciples. Notice he, he excludes Judas back in verse 10. I'm not speaking of all of you, he says. Why? Because he knew who was to betray him. He's not talking about physical water here. He's talking about a spiritual cleansing, and Judas does not have it. You are completely clean, he tells the ten, plus Peter. So Jesus here says that by virtue of his cross work and his word, the disciples are already completely clean. But they are also in need of regularly washing their feet. Now what does that mean? See that? He does not have need except to wash his feet, but is completely clean. What does that mean? I take it to mean that while believers are decisively purified from all their sin through Christ's work for them on the cross, never to be lost, never to be repeated again, you're already clean by his word and by faith in him. There's still a need of daily applications of that work as they traverse this world and continue to sin. They don't lose their status of being cleansed, in other words. But they are also in need of fresh applications of the blood of Christ as they confess their sin and look to him. Look with me at 1 John. This will be the last place we go. Chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. Look at verse 7. But if we walk in the light, 
as he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, does what? It cleanses us from all sin, entirety. It's what it means to be a believer. Christ's blood cleanses you from sin so that you are completely forgiven, fundamentally transformed, never to be repeated again. But John equally wants you to be warned from thinking you don't sin anymore or that you do not have need to continually go back to the blood in confession and faith. Look at verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Evidence, you are not a believer if your feet are not washed. What do believers do? Verse 9. If we confess our sins, it's the ongoing habitual practice of a believer. They're confessing people. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive our sins, plural, specific sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As a believer, you are already completely clean. Christ has washed you with his blood. But as a person completely clean, you're still in need continual need to have your feet cleansed by this same blood day by day as you sin. We don't lose our status. You're already clean. But until the day we die, we will have need of constant recourse to Christ for daily fresh applications of his blood. And we experience that in confession and in faith afresh. So let me leave you with three implications and I'll open it up. We're almost out of time. If you belong to Christ, he has loved you to the greatest degree possible. It's a love unique to his disciples. It's not the general love for the world. It's a love unique to you, his sheep, whom he's chosen, the Father's given to him. He loves you. He's demonstrating the greatness of his condescension for you and his work on the cross. Number two, behold the glory of Christ's condescension. He was enthroned in eternal glory and came to the lowest of lows. He did that for you, and that should have massive implications in your life. Ripple effects that go out. If you've experienced that, if you've seen that, it should sink down deep and fundamentally transform you, which is what we will see next time. The point is, if you miss this point, you won't be able to model him. You have to get this first if you're going to model him. Finally, know your status, believer. You're already clean. Clean. Yet you need daily to go back, confess your sins, look to the blood, fresh applications of his work, your life as you wash let him wash your feet that's what true disciples look like and Judas is not that sweet sweet passage any questions comments thoughts yes so would it be correct to characterize it like the need for continual confession is part of sanctification but not like salvific for I mean all these links you know salvation is you know at a certain point and not but it, I don't you know what I'm saying I, I think you're exactly right yeah um, 
You're justified decisively at a moment. Your sins are atoned for decisively at a moment. You're reckoned righteous, reckoned clean, forgiven. And yet, as a believer, the way we experience that and the way we go through life is we still sin. We have sin that the way we apply that work of Christ to our account is we bring it to him in confession. So it's that already not yet sort of paradigm of how a believer's in. You're already clean. You're already justified. Therefore, become what you already are, right? And uh, um, so it's, it's a paradox in one sense. In another sense, it makes complete sense. Um, I've been so clean, atoned for by Christ. What else am I going to do other than return back to him who, who loved me to begin with, confess it, and experience fresh his, his forgiveness, his love? Good question. Jen. Uh, in verse 7, Jesus answered them, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Do we read that into the immediate context of them, him explaining the washing, the cross, Pentecost, or this kind of continual progression as these things take place, you're going to understand what the cross, what my life really is. Yeah, I think that word, these things, is specifically referring to the entirety of the events that's going to take place in his passion. And he's continually in this discourse, pointing his disciples forward to when he returns to them, when he resurrects, after his cross work's done, then it's going to become clear. Um, And then ultimately when the Spirit comes, like you said, uh, I think it's in John 16, he says, when the Spirit comes, he'll bring to your mind, your remembrance, all these things that I've told you, and you're going to get it. But it's because they see it through the cross. They understand it. So, good question. Questions, comments? 1019. All right. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for your grace. Thanks for Christ. To uh, bless us the rest of the day. In Jesus' name. Amen.